Hello, welcome to another episode of Echopunks, recorded live in front of an automated audience. And of course, I like to make that joke at the start of every recording because the algorithms are always there. The bots are always listening, right? Everything we do online kind of goes into the record, hence a login. And that's why cybersecurity is such a crucial and important issue. So for today's episode, a little break from the usual in that this is a presentation that I gave recently to a group of uh, cybersecurity professionals in the Ontario government. So this is a community of practice that reaches all through various public sector, internal, provincial organizations in Ontario. And it was a talk on the concept of participatory cybersecurity. The idea that everybody should be involved in protecting our digital assets, our personal information, and of course, the integrity of digital platforms. So I hope you enjoy. And of course, uh, always be sure to share us with your friends, give us a rating and uh, do get in touch. If there's ever a subject that you want us to get into, please, uh, echopunks.live. And there's a contact form there that you can fill out. All right. Thanks again. Enjoy. I've always had this belief in literacy, this belief in uh, the internet as a giant learning curve, that the higher up you can get on that learning curve, the greater your power in society. And I think cybersecurity and hacking in general has always been an excellent example of that. Like, you should not be in the cybersecurity industry if you're not a curious person, if you're not learning every day because the threats are always evolving. The technology is always evolving and there has to be a kind of base level of curiosity. So that's why I think participatory cybersecurity is such a really important subject. Now, as a quick aside, I just want to explain my particular ugliness this day. I was bitten in the face by a dog a few days ago, so it actually hurts a little when I smile and when I talk. So again, if I seem particularly agitated today, that may be a little why. But I want to start off with an initial provocation. Here in Ontario, here in a democratic society, we have, ostensibly, civilian oversight of our policing, right? We allow the public to, in some way, have some oversight or control as to the priorities and practices of our police forces. Now, imagine if we had the same thing with regard to cybersecurity. Right. Imagine if we had civilian oversight, whether provincially, whether federally and whether even just within a company that you allowed stakeholders to have some governance over what was going on. What would they say? I would argue that they would be darn right pissed off that they'd be like, well, the state of cybersecurity right now is scandalous. There's breaches every day. My personal information is constantly being targeted. My privacy is being preyed upon by all sorts of rogue actors and billion dollar corporations, right? I feel insecure when I go on the internet. Generally speaking, as a, a lay person, as a civilian in a society, if you ask them how they felt about cybersecurity, they would be very upset. And that's no fault of your own. I think cybersecurity professionals as an industry have been doing their best since day one 
But I feel that that has always been inadequate. It's always been reactive. It's always been catching up, right? The, the adversaries are always one step ahead of us. And as we now acknowledge, it's because the adversaries are foreign intelligence services. Like, how do you expect an individual consumer? How do you expect a small business? How do you expect a library or even a municipal government? to have any capability to stand up against the active persistent threats that are coming from China, North Korea, Russia, Iran, the United States, right? All of these places are why cybersecurity continues to be a, a crisis. So I feel in these desperate times, we must have desperate measures. So we need participatory cybersecurity. We need everybody involved in cybersecurity. It can't just be the domain of experts. We need leaders, we need teachers, we need, you know, scientists, we need administrators. But fundamentally, we all know that the user is and always has been the weakest link in the chain. And we can say that as a cliche, or we could actually look at the sociological science that looks at how to engage people, how to change their behavior, how to create policies that they believe in rather than ignore and defy. Now, I wanna spend some time today talking about AI. So this morning, I posted a paper on participatory cybersecurity on my LinkedIn and on Medium. So if you wanna go find it, it's there. You can get into this in detail because, oh my God, are we now in for an a, even a more amplification and exponential increase in this crisis because of large language models because of AI and what's happened. Now, I remember in the late 90s, after I'd been arrested for hacking and I started to learn about hackers, the big phenomena in the late 90s, early 2000s were what we called script kiddies. And script kiddies were basically people who had zero computer science capability, but they knew how to run a script. And there were all these criminals, all these opportunists who were offering scripts to anyone who wanted to do a denial of service attack, who wanted to, you know, try to find uh, vulnerabilities, try to reverse engineer passwords. So you required zero technical capability to become a hacker. Now, that existed in the early 90s because the cybersecurity defenses, in many cases, were non-existent, right? Yes, governments, yes, large corporations had them, but most people didn't. So script kiddies existed, not just because the tools were accessible, but because the targets were incredibly vulnerable, right? They really had no clue as to what was going on and it made it really easy for these script kiddies to have a lot of fun. That era ended partly because hacking became way more sophisticated and the defenses became way more sophisticated. And for many years, even though cybersecurity is fundamentally an open source industry, where anyone can go and learn, anyone can go and experiment, anyone can be a good guy or a bad guy or realistically somewhere in between. But there was a certain barrier to entry. There was a certain kind of commitment, literacy work you had to do to get there. We're back in the script kitty days, folks, because large language models now make it real simple for people to get computers to do whatever they want. Now, I personally would always define hacking as lying to a computer because a computer's too stupid to know whether you're lying or not, right? Identity, root, right? Password, the password that the root guy has. Okay, yeah, you're the root account. Go ahead, have fun. 
right? But now, okay, cybersecurity makes authentication, fraud, all those things more difficult, but you can still lie to computers. And here's where I'm gonna take a quick tangent to share my own ideological, theological view of artificial intelligence, because it turns out everybody's got a different definition of what AI is. As far as I'm concerned, large language models are just statistical engines that accurately predict which word or which code or which number's gonna come next. AIs are not conscious. AIs are never gonna be conscious. We have no understanding of what consciousness is. So why do we think AI's gonna achieve it? No, it's data, it's statistics. It's really quite easy to explain. I think the biggest marketing screw up of the last 10 years is when the cloud computing companies dropped the ball because everything we call AI today is really just cloud computing with a sexy myth on top to make you think it's something special. But don't get me wrong, large language models are incredibly powerful. And oh, by the way, many of them are open source. So even if ChatGPT, even if Google Gemini, now available in Ontario as of yesterday, even if they put in guardrails, even if they put in constraints that they view will stop abuses, there will always be other LLMs that are operating for people to use that will not have those constraints. One of the more notorious right now is Worm GPT. It's gotten a lot of coverage in the tech press as something that was available on the dark web. As far as I can see, it's actually available on the main web and it specializes in generating exploits and malicious software and you know enabling all the things that script kiddies used to do. But I don't even think you need to get into that kind of a specialized LLM. I can hack anybody right now with ChatGPT. Like the ability to social engineer, you know, uh, 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 Kevin Mitnick being the pioneer of, of such techniques has always been upon preying upon human psychology, preying upon a human gullibility. And I personally have been doing a lot of experiments in which I'm using the techniques of large language models on uh, uh, the gullible uh, uh, network that we call Facebook, in which people are ready to believe anything they see and write. And all I got to say is it's like shooting fish in a barrel. I mean, there's a reason why the uh, Republican nominee uh, for president of the United States in this election is probably gonna be that guy Voldemort. And he's probably gonna have a really good chance to win because it's really easy to hack people these days. You don't need a lot of technology to hack anymore. You just need some creative images, creative narratives. I mean, this is what QAnon taught us. And LLMs now put that into the capacity of anyone and everyone. And uh, recently, you know, what was called the first deep fake hack in which uh, people used uh, LLMs and some of the other similar AI uh, image and video generation to create uh, kind of the, the evolution of spear phishing, where they created the identities of specific executives and had Zoom meetings in which they authorized transfers and contracts. And it was a, a multi-million dollar targeted a Hong Kong bank, if I recall correctly, a multi-million dollar fraud hack using this same technology. So again, the options available to attackers, the opportunities, I mean, Jamal in his comments, he sort of made a declarative statement of, well, we know this exploit is out there, but we don't know if anyone's weaponized it yet. And of course I laughed, I'm like, how do you know that Jamal? With all respect, you don't. 
right? And the speed by which people are going to weaponize exploit knowledge. And, and we're not even talking zero day stuff that, you know, it has its own market unto itself. The barrier to entry to be a jerk, the barrier to entry to be evil is now zero, right? It takes very little to use these tools to do crazy things. So what are we going to do about it? Participatory cybersecurity, which comes down to literacy and jargon, or more importantly, the lack thereof. Don't get me wrong, I use jargon. It's a very uh, valuable rhetorical device, but it alienates people and it creates walls against comprehension and understanding. And that can work in other areas, maybe. That can work if you believe in security through obscurity, and you think that if, oh, we can protect the knowledge of how to break into these systems, that'll keep them safe. No, the knowledge is out there. The skills are out there. The desire is out there. So we need to envision and enable bottom-up approaches to cybersecurity at the policy level and at the practice level. That means instead of training, we have workshops, we have scenarios that don't just involve leaders, that involve everybody. Think about how we do emergency preparedness in the real world. Tragically, we don't do it well enough, but we should be doing emergency preparedness in the, in the physical, in the digital world, engaging everybody. And we shouldn't be thinking of trainings as one-offs. We should be thinking of literacy as a learning curve, as something we have to get everybody on so that we're elevating all users to a point that, as Jamal pointed out, they, they think multi-factor authentication as a default, as, as, not, as an intuitive approach. Right? They hesitate to create a new account on some service until they've actually evaluated that service and decided if it's trustworthy or not. I mean, all of these issues are gonna become more complicated in the future, which means on the one hand, it's a very lucrative time to be in the cybersecurity industry, but on the other hand, a really stressful one too. Right. I mean, this to Graham's point, this is why I stopped doing morning radio, because I read research about how getting up early in the morning kills you. How it literally gives you a shorter lifespan. So like stress is not something I personally want to encounter. And if I had to, as part of my job, I would want to distribute it as widely as possible. I would want many hands making a lighter load. And I think when it comes to cybersecurity, that is essential. And that's where I think as a society, we need to move away from vilifying or criminalizing the hacker, right? The hacker is not the villain. The criminal is the villain. The foreign intelligence agencies are the villains. Hey, maybe the domestic intelligence agencies are villains too. I don't know. But my point is the hacker themselves needs to be embraced as the citizen of the digital world. And I mean this in the classical sense of hacker, the person who understands their technology, who can take it apart and put it back together, who can teach other people how to use it, and most importantly, does not conform to how the designer of the technology expects it to be used, right? We should be defying those who create the technology, those who offer the services, we should use Teams the way we want to use Teams and not necessarily the way that Microsoft tells us to use Teams. 
as I'm doing today, right? Because I'm not offering a presentation deck. I hate PowerPoint. I think it should burn. Instead, I'm using OBS Studio, which is a free and open source software that allows me to change whatever's on my screen so that, for example, if I want to promote my newsletter, the Echo Punks Gazette, I can bring up a web browser that allows you to do so while also saying, hey, let's check on the horses and see if they're spooked and it's a really warm day here in Ontario, so I'm kind of worried about flooding. But it allows for a more dynamic, a more accessible way to provide a cybersecurity briefing to help people understand, uh, you know, why cybersecurity practices are effective. And more importantly, to teach people how to hack, right? To help them think as if uh, the way the adversary would, to help them imagine you know, what the consequences are of them being hacked by going through the scenarios of how they would do it. Anyone who understands hacking recognizes that the consequences of doing so, quite frankly, outweigh the reasons. But it also engenders a, a, a sensitivity, a knowledge capability to make better decisions and protect your security. So while, uh, again, I will repeat, the uh, uh, future outlook for the cybersecurity industry is looking great from a financial perspective. We are not going to be effective if we don't completely change our model and involve more people and become leaders and educators in a way we have by default, right? In, in a way we have by accident, but we're not getting the kind of institutional recognition we deserve. Right. We're, we're, we're not at the table. We're not part of the decision making process in the province, uh, uh, in corporations, in society. Right. Because we're, we're we're kind of marginalized as the nerds. We're marginalized as the geeks. And that's one of the reasons people don't take cybersecurity seriously versus we need to be taking the other approach. And again, I, I'm neither a Democrat nor a Republican, but I will say that Barack Obama was a community organizer. Right. That part of his legitimacy as president was he was someone who organized communities and helped them empower themselves. And I think that's what cybersecurity professionals need to see themselves as community organizers. Right. You're not a cop who's trying to police the people who are under your constituency. Maybe you're a law enforcement officer who's helping to protect them. But more realistically, you're a community leader who's actually there not just to protect them, but to educate them and to serve them. Now, of those three identities, if I told you that each of them was, quote unquote, a chief of police, which one of the three would be trusted more? Right. The chief who's seen as the cop, the chief who's seen as the bureaucrat or the chief who's seen as the community leader who's connected to empathic with and, and, and bonded with the community they serve. That's the future of a cybersecurity professional. And, and that's the challenge when dealing with the accessible, powerful artificial intelligence tools that are available today. You know, the tragedy is, is these grifters like Sam Altman and Elon Musk are trying to tell us that these great machines are coming alive. And they do that to scare people from using these tools. When instead, we should help people demystify these tools so they can use them in a way that's not only responsible, but empowering, right? That helps them trust their technology in a way that, uh, quite frankly, very few people do. And I'm assuming that's including us, right? People who actually have a high level of cybersecurity literacy, I suspect we don't trust these types of things. So 
uh, th those are my kind of general remarks. I wanted to leave, you know, as much time as necessary to uh, questions, comments, heckles, uh, challenges. Uh, so please, if there's anything else that you guys would like to discuss, I suspect uh, there may be some polls prepared, but I would love to, you know, really hear in general the reactions, thoughts, problems with some of the comments that I've offered today.